Welcome to SelfDiscoveryMedia.com, where we discover the communities that are making a difference in the lives of others. Our self-discovery is something we are all making on our life's journey. Here you will find the people that will be your guidance, that will be your inspiration, that will be there for you in support on your journey of life. Do enjoy. Our next show is... Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Mental Health Awareness right here on selfdiscoverymedia.com. I'm your host, Sarah Troy, and my guest today is Dr. Everett Bartlett, Domestic Violence and Affirmation Action, and he belongs to the Domestic Violence Coalition to end domestic violence altogether. Now, he's been doing some results, you know, uh, from as recent as November 3rd, um, the elections revealed broader voting dissatisfaction and, and affirmation uh, action laws and policies that afford preference to certain gender, racial and ethnic groups. The results suggest that the domestic violence laws, which for years have been given preference to females, are losing favour. We're going to discuss more about that today because we have a whole thing here for you to come and read, which kind of shakes everything up. But this is the conversation on, um, he was telling me before we started the show, rape is down and uh, domestic violence seems to be kind of leveling off a little bit. So let's look at those statistics, but also how people can actually get through this festive season, which at the best of times can cause people to be more stressed out. Stress very often triggers violence and and angst and people don't know how to cope with it so uh, there's a lot that we have to learn here today so welcome to the show Everett. Pleasure Everett. to be with you Sarah. <laughs> um, violence, domestic violence has been around since the beginning of time and it's basically people who are dis dissatisfied with, with their own lives, don't know how to cope with it. Very often it comes from uh, violence that's been imposed upon them as children. They've never learned to release it or, or to, to deal with it. And when they get frustrated, they take it out on someone else, whether it's physical, whether it's mental abuse, uh, it's the inadequacy to be able to express oneself um, with the anger without you know, it imposing on someone else. So it's been around since the beginning of time, but you're saying at the present moment during COVID and Corona that the violence levels have been down, which is fascinates me. Please do tell me more about that. Well, it is fascinating, and I'll start out by saying, Sarah, that <clears throat> there are a lot of myths connected to this issue of domestic violence. One of those myths is that this is only about husbands exercising their patriarchal power and control over, over, their, over their wives. Well, <clears throat> uh, it turns out that that's a very inaccurate picture. It turns out, and I'm going to be using uh, really just American data in our discussion today. But anyway, but according to the American Centers for Disease Control, uh, it turns out that, that men are more likely to be victims of physical domestic violence than women. Um, I'll give you the actual numbers. Uh, each year there's 4.2 million male victims of domestic violence compared to 3.5 female victims of mm. domestic violence. So that's just for starters. And there's many other myths of domestic violence. And, and let's talk about uh, what you were just mentioning a minute ago. So <clears throat> yes, this is one of these, call it urban legends about domestic violence that with coronavirus um, and, and, and groups were warning about a, a spike, uh, a spurt. Uh, you know, they were, they were using the most um, 
worrisome adjectives that you can imagine mm -hmm. uh, foretelling of, of gloom and doom. Um, of course, they were only mentioning female victims. They never mentioned about male victims. You don't hear about male victims. Um, you just don't. Right. Yeah. So anyway, but this, uh, because there, there are so many myths connected to the domestic violence arena, <clears throat> when people started talking about this impending spike in domestic violence, I immediately became suspicious. So I thought, okay, let's, let's follow this at the, act at the most reliable data, the most reliable information available, which are police reports. And, and, and even a person who is in a, you know, in a very claustrophobic situation, they still have a cell phone. Mm -hmm. um, if, if there's, you know, violence going on, a, a next door neighbor, especially in an urban setting can hear that. So in this, in the US, of course, we have the 911 call. Um, so making a 911 call, it's not difficult to do. Uh, even when you're in a in a unusual or extreme circumstance, so so my group, Center for Coal and Domestic Violence, we started tracking these police reports from all across the country, and we uh, we went online. We we sent uh, emails to the police department. And we said, "Tell us your actual numbers." Well. <clears throat> This is what we found out. We looked, we got information from 30 different police departments all across the country. Um, and out of those 30, three of them did show an increase, like a 10% increase in domestic violence. Um, but the remaining, it was about half were just stable, essentially no change. But what was amazing is that in about 12 or 15 of these uh, police departments, they actually saw a decrease in domestic violence incidents in terms of 911 calls uh, that they were receiving. <clears throat> and so it, 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 totally, it, it totally destroys this, this legend that uh, we were just gonna see dead bodies around the street mm. as a result of coronavirus. Right. Um you know, I suppose one of the reasons could be is that a lot of the time, you know, people are going out drunk or getting high, coming home and taking it out in the family. And if they're being isolated, they haven't got access to that. Right. And they've got to kind of deal with those demons right on the spot. Uh, of course, there's many, many domestic violence that are never reported. So, you know, you're only going by what is reported there. And there's some that are just too scared to because they're in the house and with coronavirus, you're locked down and you don't know where to go. So there are those cases. But, you know, domestic violence on men. Now, I would have thought emotional domestic violence you know, uh, words, accusations, this, that, et cetera, browbeating, as I call it, would be extremely high. But I'm really surprised that the physical, because you always think, you know, the man is more dominant than the woman. So if the woman's physically beating on the man, you know, is he just taking it? Is he fighting back? I mean, you know, what's up with that? Well, of, of course, um, many men um, uh, grew up with the, the very strict admonition Thou shalt never lay your hand on a woman. Right. Right. And that admonition was like issued like the, the 11th commandment issued from God. And so, uh, so m m most men are, are very, you know, thoughtful and careful about that. 
So, so again, the, the stereotype is very different from the reality. So, and I mentioned to you the numbers 4.2 million versus 3.5 million. And actually that was not the first time we've known that. These are studies actually that have been going back to the 1980s, the 1990s studies done. Um, University of British Columbia has done some studies about this uh, elsewhere in Canada, elsewhere around the world. The, 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 the pattern that we have seen over and over again is that, well, first of all, a lot of this, these domestic violence cases are mutual, right? Mm, yeah. so the woman slaps the guy mm-hmm. and he shoves her back. Yeah. That's, that, that's a mutual domestic violence. And that's a fairly common scenario. Um, yeah. But for the, the unilateral domestic violence, it's, it's about 50-50. You know, we have, this is an equal opportunity problem. Right. Do you find with different ethnic groups, different numbers? So, so there was a study done that that's asked this question in 32 different countries around the world, including several countries in Latin America and, and Africa and Asia. It was not just Western countries. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and again, I mean, it, there was some differences, you know, in individual countries, but Overall, this study, and this was looking at university students, overall found that, again, found that, that there were more male victims of physical domestic violence than female victims. Um, and so I, I don't know that we can generalize by ethnic groups. I think there's evidence that shows that lower income yes. persons are more likely to engage in domestic violence than, than <clears throat> higher income. But maybe the most surprising statistic is this the group with the very highest domestic violence rates are lesbian couples oh, right really? not not homo- homosexual lower but but clear far and away higher among lesbian couples so again this theory of patriarchal mm. you know power and control doesn't quite hold up does it well, the power control can come in any form, <laughs> shape or well, size. Well, yes, right? yes, 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 right. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's probably not patriarchal, but mm-hmm. uh, it, it could be, there could be a power control element to it, yes. I mean, you know, whatever the statistics are and whatever the situation is, domestic violence is something that I don't think is given enough light on. You know, it's brushed on, it's addressed, but it never seems to be given a good focus of, you know, how can we stop this violence? How can we help people deal with their anger so they don't take it out on each other? From doing all of these shows and over 2000 myself, I found a common denominator in anybody that's had to deal with anything. It comes from the inner child, the inner child of neglect or seeing abuse or being abused, um, not, not being able to deal with their anger, repeating patterns unknowingly. And if we don't address you know, our past and what makes us angry in the first place, we're never going to be able to get a grip on it and redirect it, are we? And that's that's clearly true in the in the area of domestic violence uh you you've probably heard the the phrase the cycle of violence yes and that's exactly what you've described is the people who who experienced or witnessed domestic violence as a child tend to uh, rely on that when they become adults and that becomes a pattern Um, that said there there are other mental health pieces to this Mm -hmm. one is um, alcohol or substance abuse That's connected to, I think, like 60% of all 
domestic violence incidents. And then another one is <clears throat> partner discord and partner relationship breakup. And, and when we see a couple, you know, breaking up, we do see much higher rates of domestic violence. But again, you look at all these three, you know, uh, childhood abuse, alcohol, uh, relationship breakup, those are primarily mental health issues that suggest why are we not paying more attention yeah. to mental health root causes? Right. I have a series called the Forgotten Children series, and it is about um, if we invest in our children now, you know, water, nurture them now as children, we're not going to see such dysfunctional adults down the road. Right. And, you know, I do feel it's, it's a huge, big area that's been left enormous gap. And I'm going to hit on browbeating, the mental aspect of it, because it's not something that people call the police on. Um, I was in a relationship with a browbeater. Um, he was unhappy about something. He made sure, he, I used to call him a piranha. He would go into a totally different zone and he would just verbally attack you forcefully with a forcible energy until you were crumpled up on the floor. Never hit me, but emotionally completely beat me until I was just a pulp. There was no way of calling the police. How can you prove that? There's no physicality. So you've got the numbers on the phys physical uh, thing, but the amount of people that are going for the emotional abuse probably not be able to tell those numbers at all. Yeah, and and um, and and the sometimes that's referred to as coercive control, mm -hmm. and and there actually has been a lot of discussion about that part of it, and it's controversial. Yes, because, because like the scenario you just described is is of course it it you know person victims of that circumstance need help yes right? the the perpetrator probably doesn't need to be incarcerated but no. but needs probably help. needs some kind of needs help yes so but the, the 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 problem is and and this is especially true in australia especially true in the uk that they are actually talking about passing laws about what they call coercive control but that the result would be throwing people in jail. So, yes. so again, we're we're you know we're dealing. We're repeating with, a pattern that doesn't work. We're, yeah, <laughs> we're, yeah, we're 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 creating you know even a more dysfunctional yes. situation um, in the name of, of trying to, to reduce dysfunction. So, so it, it's recognizing that there are very important mental health roots to this problem. It's better dealt with primarily through the mental health system and only secondarily through the criminal justice right, system. Right, I agree. It's, it's much like what we're seeing with, um, you know, the defunding of the police. It's not taking the police away, but it's having um, social workers or other type mental health workers going along with the police and assessing what the situation is before guns are drawn. You know, a gun is drawn on somebody who's going through a, you know, a, a mental crisis at the time. All of a sudden, it's escalated out of reason. And they're going to react out. And the next thing you know, they're shot because right. the cops are not trained in this. So I do agree. Most certainly funding needs to come in where we see more forefront you know, social workers uh, out there recognizing is it dementia? Is it um, is it PSD, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder? Is it, uh, you know, um, a, a, Alzheimer's, um, autism. I mean, there's so many of these cases where, you know, the gun is drawn 
and they don't know what they're up against. And if they have the right people there, they can assess it, they can calm the people down and defuse the situation. So I'm all for that. I think we need to see more of these workers and funding for these workers in our communities everywhere. And it's really interesting. Just yesterday, I was watching a, uh, a webcast of, of two senior police chiefs in the United States. And that was one of the questions that came up um, during the webcast was this exact idea. And both of them said they're very open to the idea. Their concerns were just sort of more of the practical aspects. Uh, one was the police chief of Baltimore, Maryland. And he said, well, in Baltimore, there's no entity, you know, that's available 24 hours a day mm -hmm. to accompany a police officer, you know, at two in the morning mm -hmm. to, to deal with, you know, a situation. So, so the barriers are, I think, are more logistical and practical and financing rather than, I mean, I financing. think the concept, concept yeah. uh, police officers, and they use the term uh, co-responders, that was the actual term they use for this idea. It's a good idea. Yeah, I think it's an excellent idea. And, you know, as far as two o'clock in the morning, nurses and other people have shift work. Right. And so there are plenty of right. social workers who quite happily do a night shift uh, right. as opposed to a day shift. You know, uh, you know, especially those with children at home and the husband can come home there. She can go to work. It happens all the right. time in nursing and every other industry. Why not in this industry? Right. I just don't think there is enough money put into these type of resources. I hear over and over again, you know, somebody with autism or somebody with mental stress, you know, and out comes the gun, out comes the violence. For a lot of these people, it's, you know, for even people in domestic violence, uh, their trigger is immediately to go into that violent zone. They're not thinking, they're reacting. And if you're going to make the situation worse, they're just going to combust. Mm -hmm. So you have to go in with calmness and diffusing the situation, which takes some artistry and training. Exactly. And that was actually another point made during this webcast yesterday is that you know, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, uh, excessive use of force, mm -hmm. especially use of, of, of firearms. And one of the police chiefs made the point was, well, that's more a reflection of that the officer did not know how to intervene earlier on in the process in order to preclude the, the person charging at the police officer with a drawn knife or with a loaded gun. Yeah. And the thing is, if it's a knife, then you've been trained how to bring those people down. You don't need to shoot them. If it's a gun, don't shoot to kill, shoot to maim. Right. If they shoot to kill seven times in the back or something like that, we call overkill. So also, I think what we have to do is look at the police force. And there has to be a whole new training in there on mental health on dealing with situations so not their own fear coming to the forefront because that's what we seem to see is they're scared shitless and bringing out the gun first shooting before asking questions and we need to see more training there where they maybe do have a quick dial to an organization we've got a situation here we need you here to help calm the situation or have training in that field in the police force people who are trained right. as social workers police there is always a solution i'm sick to death what did this last election cost you 14 billion dollars or something ridiculous why is that money not going where it's really needed 
You know, right. it's, and, there, and there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, the term has been thrown around is reimagining the police or reimagining law enforcement. And that's exactly the kind of idea that is being thrown around. Um, you know, how do we, I mean, let's go back to domestic violence. So, <clears throat> so, you know, most domestic violence is, is not a life-threatening situation. Usually, you know, I mean, I use the example of the woman slapping the guy and he shoved her back. Mm -hmm. That's a fairly typical scenario. It's low level. Uh, nobody's going to be, you know, going to end up in the hospital with it. But, you know, when the police come, uh, maybe it's the next door neighbor that heard the, you know, heard the... The, the, the yelling noise. and screaming, yeah. Yeah, and so the police come. So, you know, what are the assessment tools that are available to help the police officer to, you know, to evaluate the situation. Of course, you have to make that assessment very quickly. Um, so there are assessment tools. Um, we're still working to make those assessment tools better. Um, so that's one of the cutting edge issues in domestic violence. Yeah. I mean, you know, quite honestly, at the present moment, I think that 2020 has been a revealing year. Um, it's kind of brought what I called the scum to the surface. <laughs> you know, on all levels, and it's made us sit back and look at, my God, what a dysfunctional world we're living in, of our own making. And, you know, I was given a saying that the universe here is to wake us up, to, uh, sorry, to shake us up, to wake us up, for us to step up, change it up, and grow up, you know, to a higher vi vibration, a higher frequency. And if ever there was a year that shook us up and has woken us up, it's been this year, not only on the pandemic side of things, the Black Lives Movement, the, the Me Too movement that started last year, the, um, you know, the whole political thing that's been going along, which I called a hurricane, just causing hysteria, hysteria, hysteria. And that just puts everybody over on alert. And so that's where you see reactions of violence. Right. And there's so much uh, that we have learned this year that we realize is broken. And now it really needs the leaders you know, uh, all of the leaders of the world, but especially North America, to look into and, and bringing into the mental health workers, you know, bringing in, um, um, you know, ethnicity workers where different cultures are, are involved and looking at how can we resolve these situations? Where do we really put the money? Because everything right. always comes down to money, doesn't it? The people are there, but you've got to put the money behind it to bring the people in, in, in the right order, in the right equation. Yeah. Let's come back to the coronavirus issue. So I, I was sharing with you that that the, these these uh, dire predictions of you know a, a dangerous spurt in domestic violence that those predictions and not a single place in North America did those predictions come true, and in some places domestic violence went down and rape went down. So why why is what is the reason behind that? Well, um, so there was actually a survey done by it's called the American Community Survey, um, and they surveyed, you know, several thousand people, and they asked them about how did their family relationships, how were they, their family relationships affected by coronavirus? And you might be surprised by the results of this, but the results sh showed that the majority of people, 70, 80% of people, they said that they, they became more appreciative of their relationship with their spouse. They became more attentive to the needs of their partner as a result of the coronavirus. 
So I think that may well explain why we have seen uh, a decrease in domestic violence, a decrease in, in rapes. And as you know, many rapes are between people who know each other. They're not strangers mm -hmm. in a back alley. So, um, so, you know, that I think is the, probably the best explanation we have is that uh, as a result of the, you know, being forced to spend more time with your family and your, and your, and your partner, um, people are actually sort of relearning that appreciation for that relationship. So anyway, so that's, that's my theory. Mm. Why well, no escape, right? Where can you go? You're in lockdown, you know, there's no escape. Yeah. You can't yeah. go to the bar, you know, um, <laughs> you, you know, you can't go to the gym to work it out. Uh, there are children at home that need to be schooled, right. you know? Right. And so it's like, all of a sudden your role as a father and as a husband or as a wife and as a mother, you're in this together, navigating this new road together. And it's like, right. you know, put a, we're, we're all frustrated here. We're, we're all, you know, this is all new to us. Let's not argue about it. Let's just find a solution to it. Right. And, yeah. right. So that may be the silver lining of the mm. coronavirus is that uh, we are seeing sort of a, a, a strengthening of those family ties as a result. Yeah. And, you know, we know that um, anger on any level uh, breaks down your immune system, um, you know, it breaks down your psyche, it breaks down everything. It's, it's a, a frustration that you can't express, uh, you don't know how to deal with, and, you know, add on any mental health issue because where does the anger come from you may not have post-traumatic stress you may not have all those other labels but you maybe you're just very easily triggered it's something that's hereditary I, I just that your frustration level is so high you just mm. don't know how to deal with something and this you know this as I said I've got 2700 podcasts here this is the time to really go I don't have the answers but they're out there they're in the podcast they're in the TED talks they're in the webinars and this is the time to go I need answers I have got time to sit and listen mm -hmm. listen and learn right. and that's I think as human beings we've got to stop looking at everybody coming and just putting a band-aid on the situation or fixing you is that if you listen to the experts around this field they will show you the skills and tools that you can apply to yourself Mm -hmm. to help fix the problem there's always right. a solution but are you willing to look for it right and and anger is certainly that's the, the kind of mental health issue that can be treated can be successfully treated um and and learning to uh to divert or focus that anger in positive constructive ways so yes very much so this and and i'll just say say this to your your viewers and listeners that uh if you're dealing with anger that that uh, there is there there is help available, and you can get over that anger, and you can you can you know be less likely to find yourself in a domestic violence incident. You know the skills and the tools of what to do. I'm getting angry. I know things are going to get blown out of proportion. It's time to chill out. Go and take a walk if you can. Go and listen to some right. music. Go and work out in the gym. Do something. It's right. time to redivert it. Don't don't react to the moment. Because when you right. take that breath and you step back and you defuse, you come back and you don't look upon that, whatever was happening as an attack, right? But instead of something to address more peacefully. So I think right. the, the art of going, this conversation is let, later, let's both shelve it, take a deep breath and come back and look at it rationally. And well, it's the concept of boundaries. Yes. Uh, having a healthy sense of boundaries 
is so important so that when somebody else acts out, says something inappropriately, calls you a name, you, you, your immediate instinct is, oh, well, what is that saying about that person's mm-hmm. mental state at this moment in time? It says nothing. It, it says nothing about me that I'm being called a name because it's obviously not true. So, but to do that, you have to have a healthy sense of boundaries uh, so that you're not, uh, you know, you know, you're not drawn, you're not entangled yeah. in that in the emotions of that other person. Mm. And fundamentally, we're all responsible for ourselves right? Who we are, uh, how we interact with people, what, what kind of life we live is our choice. Now, we don't always get to choose what happens to us, but we can choose how we react to it. And, you know, uh, the finger pointing, it's your fault. You did this, you did that. There's three pointing back at you. Where's your accountability? Right. Right. And it's not a blame or a shame thing. It's about address the situation within yourself first. Right. Have you ever heard the book Man's Search for Meaning? Yes. Um, I, I've read the book. It, it was written by a, a fellow who was a survivor of World War II Holocaust, Holocaust of a, of a concentration camp. Um, and he, he, even going through that experience, he said, the way you respond to or cope with the situation is mostly up here in your own head and in your own, in your own self. And this, this is how he talks about man's search for meaning is to mm. to be able to cope with situations by not being not internalizing these situations yeah that's a big thing though isn't it? especially if you don't know the tools i refer to this book a lot who moved my cheese by spencer johnson i don't know if you've read it very thin very quick oh. metaphorical book of two mice and two men living around uh, abundance of cheese and one day the cheese is gone and it's the four different reactions. I'm also a true colors coach. And so those four uh, key personality traits very much match the characters that are in this book. And sometimes by identifying our own um, persona, our own traits, we understand why we react in the way that we do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that um, as a particular, maybe a green person, they just may some, say something very dry and very short. And, but, and, and the other person wants more conversation and clarification. You're not going to get it from that person. They don't do it that way. So I think understanding what personality trait you are and what personality trait you're married to or with gives you a better understanding of how to address your language when you want someone to hear you mm-hmm. right, right. in the conversation. Because communication is or the lack of is where the issue is isn't it how do we communicate with each other where we're truly listening and not going on the defense waiting to react you know how do we communicate in a way that that person is going to hear what i have to say right so i i totally agree with everything you're saying so i mean we can bring this back to the domestic violence context so in the united states we have a uh, the the most biggest law it's called the violence against women act and and I've actually read through every every word of the law, and and I it's just it's both ironic and sad that there's not a single word anywhere in that law about mental health, alcohol abuse, couples counseling. Any it's just mental health issues are just a foreign concept yes. in that world. So so my organization, the Coalition on Domestic Violence, is trying to um, first of all educate lawmakers that. You know, every time a woman slaps a, a guy, we don't have to throw her in jail every right. time. 
every time yeah. it you know same the other way around the same is true so to just to think of this this issue in a different way so that we can you know you know focus on roots causes mm-hmm. focus on solutions um and 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 i think it's, it's sort of i implied earlier when i was talking about this patriarchal power and control model there's a lot of ideology tied in with this particular issue uh, and it, a lot of it goes back to the to the the gender belief that domestic violence is how men uphold their power and control well that's that's a very call it ideological statement and obsolete statement it should be yeah and and yes sometimes persons need for 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 control is a factor but there's there's many other factors sometimes uh and sometimes women engage in domestic violence because they want they feel like they're being ignored Mm-hmm. partner right and so they slap the guy they hit the guy they throw something at him it you know that's not a power and control issue that's they just want more attention yeah so anyway so what i'm saying is there's many motivations and part of what we're trying to do is you know take us away out of this world of ideology and put it into the world of well what does the science say what is the evidence that <clears throat> backs up a, a certain approach um so rather than than stereotyping rather than you know re, you know rather than stigmatizing certain individuals or groups um you know we need to get past those stereotypes and and again look at these root causes yeah. I, I call it intellectualizing that's just the head analyzing but you know we we know that the the intelligence of the heart soul and spirit needs to be in the equation that is part of your personality trait. And so many people shut their heart down because they've been hurt or they're scared. Well, they're shutting down an intellect there, you know, and stopping the, 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 the soul speaking their wisdom to you. And so you can get your spirit in the go. We need to help people open up on all levels, because if we just intellectualize it, you're in around and around and around in a circle, dissecting, yes, but what if, yeah, yeah. But we, we've got to feel because what are happening with people that are in mental health, they're feeling and they they have feelings they don't know how to deal with. They're feeling the pain, they're feeling the confusion, they're feeling the loss, they're, they're feeling um, unworthy. Um, and there's so much feeling going on that if you're only going to approach it from an intellectual point of view, how are you going to ever understand and connect with the way they're feeling? Right, right. And I, and I think that's, that's really the, the, there's absolutely a growing awareness of exactly that, that this is more of a, much more of a mental health issue than a criminal justice issue. I'll, I'll just tell you, for example, um, in, in the United States, every state has its own, what's called a domestic violence coalition. Um, and it was, it was almost miraculous this past summer, uh, 46 of these state coalitions actually signed a statement they called it the moment of truth statement where they absolutely in very strong terms rejected this model that we have to always throw people in jail every time that there's a you know one of these minor incidents that there needs to be much more focus and they talked about what they call restorative justice Mm -hmm. which is very connected to what we're talking about now so so now it's not just you know, a few people like or organizations like my organization. Now we have these 
politically very influential organizations in the U.S. that are agreeing that this, this uh, you know, th th throw them in jail if it moves concept uh, is just doesn't work. And I'll tell you another reason why it doesn't work. In low-income communities, victims don't want their partner to be thrown in jail because they need Partly, they need the the the, uh, the person's livelihood. Mm -hmm. They're attached to that person. One of my former employees was a prosecutor uh, of domestic violence cases. She told me about cases where um, a woman would come into to court, literally holding hands with a guy who supposedly had, had had hit her. So the point is that again you know, this, this model of, you know, we have to just throw, reflexively throw people in jail is just being rejected across the board. A hundred percent agree, especially in North America as your jails are all privately owned and they're just packed by sardines and all you're doing is throwing them into a, another violent arena where are they going to learn what they need to learn, you know, about themselves or are they constantly on guard and in defense? And that just isolates them even more from the pro uh, from the problem. So mm -hmm. it's it is not a cure, you know. The people in jail should be the people that are really violent offenders, true and utter criminals. But the I think an awful lot of people who do misdemeanors are thrown in jail that end up becoming criminals or end up becoming victims. And uh, the whole jail system needs to be looked over. And I think, you know, if, if you've got somebody that's doing domestic violence, then all right, mandatory counseling. Mandatory counseling needs to be happened there. You have to attend or the threat of jail. Right. But frame people in jail just for the sake of it. Oh, it's easier. No, it costs the taxpayers more money to throw them in jail than it would be to have proper counseling and help. Right. And there actually is a concept called um, diversion programs. Um, they're they're pretty big in the U.S. and I think also in Canada. So if a person um, is arrested for, let's say, for domestic violence, uh, that person is brought in, into a, in front of a, a judge, and, and the, base, the basic deal is this. If you are willing to go to a six-month alcohol treatment program or a six-month um, anger management program, and if you successfully conclude that program, come back to court, we will, uh, we will vacate your criminal record. There will be nothing on your record. Right. And, and you can go back about your life having addressed this mental health issue and with your record being completely clean. So it's called a diversion program. Um, they we see more of that. Definitely want to see we, more of that. We want to see more than that. Yeah. We need to see. Um, there are, I believe, about 20 of these programs. I think the closest to you is in King County, Washington. So, so they are being used. They are being developed. But if and, there's only 20 for such a massive size well, of America, there that, certainly needs to be a lot more, doesn't that's, there? That's a, a, good, a good point. So that's, you know, again, speaks to we need to break out of this, uh, you know, this ironclad ideology that we just have to throw more people in jail. But, you know, I think this has again been the year of reflection where we look at the ideology over a lot of things. And, you know, we're realizing it just doesn't work. You know, look at the situation that we're in today. And the pandemic is one thing, you know, and there's an economic pandemic now looming, but it's also so the political pandemic, but it's also the, everybody's just kind of been stretched to their limit in some form or other. People have been living around fear. 
fear has been fed to them on the news all the time, um, <laughs> hysteria and everything else. And for people that are already vulnerable, it is such a trigger. We need calmer times. We need calmer leaders. We need people who are out there saying, yes, we really do care because an awful lot of people feel at the present moment they're not cared for. They're, they can't afford to look at how many people are losing their homes or being evicted. There isn't any work. And they, losing their lives. Losing their lives. And, the, level, and, the level of depression, the level yes. of suicides. Uh, you know, there's people that are saying there have been more suicides as a result of the yeah. lockdown policies than, and it's, 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 it's questionable whether those lockdown policies have actually saved lives. Let's say they have, yeah. but, but still we have, especially among the youth, we have so many youth that have, that are depressed because they can't do sports. They can't be with their friends. Mm -hmm. They're sitting behind a computer all day uh taking zoom classes that's no way to to grow up and, and be yeah. a kid yeah but you know as i keep pointing out we're very fortunate that we don't have bombs landing on us we're not in famine right we have we're not scared that there's somebody going to break into our house and put stars on us you know whatever the case is so i think a lot of perspective needs to happen this is a temporary glitch in time the more that we all comply, the quicker we get through it and look at it for the opportunity that it is. Assessing what is wrong and what do we do to put things right. Mm -hmm. right? And that's really, really important. And, uh, you know, the, th the thing about the, the domestic violence in the jail, no, the jail doesn't work. It really doesn't work. Most people just simply don't know how to handle their emotions. The, you know, and you've got people that become more vulnerable. Um, it breaks down the immune system, which then brings about dis-ease. And so the whole health issue then comes into it. They can't afford health care, right? They haven't got a job. And now it's a spiral down. And so it really, when it all comes to it, what is the root of the problem? And the root of the problem is the money is not going to where it needs to go to support mm -hmm. people in need. So that's right up the congressional level, political level has to be stop spending so much money on elections and everything else and, <laughs> and higher interests and start putting money back into your communities. You are here to serve the people, serve the people where they need it. And that's from the root cause. For sure. Well, I, I completely agree with what you're saying, that uh, the whole mindset that, that basically dominated the, the domestic violence debate for the last uh, 20, 25, 30 years um, has taken us in, the, in a bad place. And now, uh, and actually we've identified 102 organizations. I already mentioned the 46 state coalitions, but there's many other organizations that are not domestic violence coalitions, but they have related interests like immigration or, uh, you know, you know, men getting help, male victims getting help. Uh, so anyway, we've identified 102 organizations in the U.S. Um, who all are saying, yeah, we need to fix the, these laws. Yes. I've interviewed a lot of veterans. And um, what I love about the veterans, they're not reliving the war. Um, it's about them recognizing they're coming back and integrating back into society how difficult it was because they're no longer the same person you know eh, the wife and children expect that person to come back and they're no longer that person and they have triggers and everything else and there was one that um 
with his first wife and kids no just you know his anger and everything just couldn't cope with it and it ended up breaking up the marriage and uh, he now is married to somebody who actually was a photographer on the front there so kind of understood what he was going through and but has helped him work through it now they have an organization where they help veteran uh, partners reconnect recommunicate and come back together as they are today because both people have changed you know, the, the, the spouse has so, yeah. changed, raising, looking after the children on their own, always waiting for that knock on the door. You know, the other person has changed because they've been in the war front. It's right. who are you now and how do you come back together? Right. Who addresses right. that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'll, I'll tell you a personal story. So I was uh, actually drafted into the U.S. Uh, Army, uh, and this goes back a number of years. Uh, this is during the Vietnam War era. I was not sent to Vietnam. But I, I was a draftee. I wasn't in the army because I wanted to be there, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, so I was in the United States for the entire time. I was a medical corpsman. Um, and after, I, and after uh, about two years, I was honorably discharged from the army. But it, honestly, it took me about a year to kind of get over the, call it the, the, the frustration, the anger, uh, or whatever it was. I'm not totally clear what, what that emotion was, but it took me about a year to get over that and kind of reconnect to sort of the normal everyday living. Mm -hmm. Right. So you can't expect these people just to snap back. Definitely you know, not. And, and it's, um, you know, so many of them recognize, you know, first they've got to recognize they have this post-traumatic stress, that they're a different person now and that things are going to trigger them. And that takes a lot for them to do. Because as this one guy said that he was, you know, he was a, a leader. So he was constantly in leader role and he was running his family as if they were in the military. And everybody was saying, back off, dad, you know, back off. And he had to realize that he had to defuse that. But where to go to do that where other people understood. So many of the veteran uh, stories that I've done are veterans recognizing the problem and themselves finding a solution to help other veterans. And we see this more and more, don't we? People of domestic violence, they know what the problem is. Uh, they may not know where the help is, so they create their own. But if we could put them all under one umbrella as a support, imagine how much by empowering them, they can now empower their communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, it's a different mindset. It's mm. re-envisioning domestic violence. It's re-envisioning uh, the, the, the role of law enforcement. Yes, hugely in many, 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 many ways. Um, right. We are in the Christmas uh, realm right now. We're in December. And we also know that this time of year is a very high suicide year. Um, here alone, and God knows how many deaths we've had from opioids, um, which is, you know, another pandemic all on its own. But right. it, it's a very high stressful time. And especially right now when people maybe don't even know if they have a home, they certainly don't have money to buy presents, they can't get together with family. We're going to see the stress level rise up. You know, what help can we do for people um, right now? You know, it just helping them through this emotionally or in any way that we can right well your our options are somewhat less now than than uh, in the in the coronavirus era i mean every it seems that you know every you know i think essentially all mental health encounters occur now by zoom um, some of my colleagues that i know 
do their, their, their domestic violence counseling by Zoom. Um, maybe not 100% of their clients, but most of their clients. So that, that, that definitely, you know, there, there's good and bad to that. On one hand, mm. there's a little bit more anonymity. So persons can maybe are more likely to self-disclose. Uh, on the other hand, you know, <clears throat> there's only, you know, sometimes that, that affectionate hug uh, mm. counts for a lot more than, you know, the words that anybody can say. So, uh, yeah, we are definitely in a transition period right now. Yes, most certainly. And I think it's, you know, they used to say it took a village to raise a child. Well, I think what we have to do is look at our village, whether in apartment blocks or whether in a house, what's in your neighborhood, is that this is the time to knock on the door of your neighbors and go, how are you doing? Are you holding up? You know, how about we come together, you know, on the roof, in the garden, wearing masks, respectfully distant, but come together and just chat, just be there for one another, not a bitching session, but a session of, you know, this is how I feel and I don't know how to get over the feeling, have other people, I understand that feeling, I was there, what did you do to get over it? Because we learn so much more by talking with other people, as I say, by listening to podcasts and everything else right now. Um, the people I interview are the people that are either immersed in helping other people or have gone through it. And because they've gone through it, they now know how to help other people. So the help is there, but it's the reaching out. And I think a lot of the problem is stigma. Oh, no, no. Everybody else is going through this. I need to toughen it up. Mm -hmm. I've got to suck it up. No, everybody's going through this and everybody needs someone to talk to. Reach out to someone. If they say no, no, there's somebody else around the corner. For sure, for sure. Well, I've really enjoyed chatting with you this afternoon. This has been a, uh, an enlightening and, and, and wonderful conversation. And uh, uh, we're definitely of a, of a similar mind about the importance of taking a mental health approach to domestic violence. And uh, we're very help hopeful that we will achieve many of these objectives uh, in 2021. Yes. Yeah, well, the seeding has been planted, right? We've just got to keep watering and nurturing it. So what does your organization do and how do people become a part of it or get hold of it? Well, um, we are a policy organization. In other words, we're, we're, we're meeting with lawmakers, we're meeting with staffers. Uh, we're educa also educating the public about uh, these issues are, have a very important mental health role and not just you know lock them up and throw away the key, mm -hmm. kind of cliche. So uh, I'll give you the, our website address. Uh, it's uh, end2, as in T-O, end2dv.org. Uh, I'll say that a second time, end2dv.org. Uh, we have lots of information there about how can we make these laws work better. And, you know, this, how can people participate in that? Can they write to you? Can they put forth something they want to see or, you know, um, even organizations that are already out there helping that would love to align? So, so there's, you know, people who want to get actively involved. Um, uh, we, do, we do have a very active lobbying uh, role, uh, uh, primarily in Washington, D.C. I am based in the Washington, D.C. area, but of course there's, you know, every state has its own laws. Every province in Canada has, mm. has its own laws as well. So, so, so much of the action takes place 
and needs to take place at the local level. Right. A lot of the time, people just don't know who to go to, don't know who to address, don't know what kind of question to ask. So if you've got any YouTubes or anything else like that on how to guide people to do that, you know, a lot of people are visual people. They need to see and hear someone say it to them. Um, you know, uh, this, if, you're, if this has happened to you, you don't know who to go to, look to this organization or look to this person in government, you know, and, and that's giving them the power to take action. But a lot of the time is, well, I don't know where to go. That's right. A lot of this is learning the, 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 the baby steps so we can make big steps together. Right, which is extremely important. You know, um, it would be lovely to see the back of domestic violence altogether. That is probably a little too ideological. But at the same time, is we certainly can make a dent in it by putting the right pieces in place to help diffuse the situation and empower people to manage their own issues so we do not see this violence. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to see those several million that you've just got record of, never mind the ones that don't have a record. I want to see that come right, right, right down. And it can do if we prioritize, mm -hmm. if we put the money where it needs to be. After, right. If you're looking at profit and productivity, you've got to invest in people. People plan it for profit. You want to see them enriched in their, in their selves, their home, a good job, a happy happy children then you're going to see more productivity and you're going to see more profit and prospering in a country so it's short-sighted not to invest in the problem at the root problem it's going to cost you more in the long run that's right that's right so again the site is um, coalition to end domestic violence uh, www.end2dv.org Excellent. And it's orgfolks.com. And uh, just go in and look. He's got so much material there for you to look at. Again, an awful lot of material here on selfdiscoverymedia.com. All you have to do is just put in his name, Dr. Everett uh, Bartlett, and you will see everything there. This is not something, well, this doesn't affect me. So why should I? No, it affects all of us. This is a domino effect that affects all of us. And we all need to step up. And in some way, and in some way support it in order to change because my God, does change need to happen. 2021, we want to see all these positive changes, right? <laughs> all good. Great to chat with you. Great to chat with you and thank you so much. So remember uh, folks, we're all in this together and please step up, don't turn a blind eye. We can't see it, do that, there's always an answer. So until next time, bye for now. We hope you enjoyed the show. We look forward to bringing you more shows. Please go to selfdiscoverymedia.com slash shows and you will see the incredible lineup of genres and shows that we have for you. We are here to make a difference in your life. Thank you for listening.